Hey, Action Alerts Plus members and listeners to the Action Alerts Plus podcast. We have a new episode today. I'm Chris Versace, lead portfolio manager of the Action Alerts Plus portfolio at thestreet.com. And, you know, we like to go in depth on um, what's going on in the markets, what's going on in the economy, sharing some interesting data points always that are catching our eye. And from time to time, talk about some interesting investments that are also kind of making their way into our radar. This week, I am very excited to bring in Peter Shear from Academy Securities. And Peter is simply a wonderful contributor over at Real Money. And if you haven't read his stuff, I really, really suggest that you go do it. But what I like about talking to Peter, and we've done this a few times in the past, is while we tend to be like-minded, we approach things from a very different perspective. Because while I am a dyed-in-the-wool equity geek, Peter leans more into something better known as fixed income. So it's always a great, great, um, you know, back and forth between us. So with that, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. Looking forward to it. Now, is that is that correct? You know, I, I know I said fixed income, but, you know, sometimes like with equities that that can kind of, you know, be a wide brush. Is that is that a fair descriptor for you? It is. It's, um, you know, I started my life in high yield and in credit derivatives, then did some very esoteric financing type stuff. So aircraft leasing, um, synthetic CLOs, and then ultimately morphed into, I call it a beta trader. So I actually helped create the CDS indices. I traded ABX. So anyone who's read the big short, now I was the market maker of the CDX versions, but I did trade with those people at the time. I'm still bitter about that because the movie and the book make it sound like they're the only people who figured it out. And unfortunately, people figured it out in 2005, 2006, right. and just were too early. So lots of people kind of understood that. Um, and then I got very involved in ETFs. And since then, I've transformed. And now I'm definitely more of a macro. But I do think of everything in terms of fixed income and credit. And I have to admit, it was when I first started dealing more and more with retail people that I learned fixed income. Because where I was, it was always called credit. Um, right. And you realize, OK, it's fixed <laughs> income is broadly. But I think it covers the idea. I'm thinking about the world from rates. And from the bond side, I think the one thing that always plays well is equity people tend to, I think, generically think about the upside and credit people think about the downside because yes. all you're ever going to do is get your money back. Correct. Correct. What could go wrong? Yes. So before we dive into it, just quickly give the listeners a, a description. What is it you're doing at Academy Securities specifically? So I'm our macro strategist at Academy Securities, which is quite an interesting firm. We're about 100 people. It's a service-disabled veteran-owned firm. Phil McConkie, former New York Giants, the president of the company. And we also work with 16 or 17 retired generals and admirals and one astronaut. So they serve as our geopolitical intelligence group. So what I've been able to do on top of layering my normal macro stuff, I've got this geopolitical insight that I can you know, turn into useful information, whether it's on Russia and Ukraine, what's going on with Iran. Um, China seems to be the big topic. And I spend about two thirds of my day with institutional asset managers and about a third of my day with corporations and working with treasurers and things like that. So that was a really exciting part and very different for me because I'd never really talked to corporations as directly as I do now. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I love those conversations with companies. You know, it's it's um, one of the things I enjoy the most, and this really spins out of my sell-side analyst days, is when you get to talking with CEOs, CFOs, or CCOs, or business heads, it's just, it's crazy because you ask questions and they answer. Right. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of, it, it, it's it's fun. And that, that that's why we've started uh, sharing some of the um, company conversations that we have here with Action Alerts Plus members and listeners to the podcast. But, um, you know, clearly yeah, that makes a lot complete sense. It's, I've been shocked how 
you know, it's all public information, but for example, when GE was in a bit of trouble in AT&T, you could talk to the treasurers and CFOs and understand that they were going to take their debt seriously, not because they necessarily cared about the debt, but because they cared about the equity, the impact it was having on their equity. And so we called that the year of the debt diet, and it turned out great. So I think, you know, they're pretty clear about their plans. And sometimes if you're just talking to asset managers, they get a little bit, you know, tunnel oh, vision. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and the great thing, too, is, you know, when you talk to management teams, uh, one of the tricks that I always try to do, uh, sorry, strategies, not tricks, is, <laughs> is to, um, you know, work the food chain up and down. What are you seeing in your customers? What are you seeing in your suppliers? That sort of thing. But but let's let's get into your wheelhouse, because, you know, you said a couple of things that I want to touch on just topic wise. But let's let's dig into the big one for this week. You know, obviously, uh, SVB financial signature. You know, you're looking, as you mentioned, um, from a different perspective of mine. Did you see any signs that this was coming? Um, you know, relatively few. One thing that's very disappointing to me is I've been trying to, you know, everyone looks at analogies or what this market's like. Mm -hmm. And I think it's playing out much like 2015 and 16 did. And I don't know if you remember that clearly, but it was probably more of a credit thing. But everything was centered around energy. So the closer you were to energy, the bigger problems that you had in 2015. And I've been arguing that the same thing is playing out in this market, except it's going to be around disruptive. So the closer you were to disruptive companies, including private companies and crypto, the more problems you would have. So in hindsight, I'm not sure why I didn't link this to SVB, but I didn't. So I, I kind of missed that. So that part's not surprising. I think what did surprise me is what their portfolio looks like. I can't mm. tell whether people just decided to not attend the day they taught the SNL crisis or <laughs> what they were missing because banks that I've been working at, and I, when I talk to most banks, right, it's much more about credit risk. So you're trying to take credit spread. You are trying to find someone who will pay you a rate plus 200 basis points and you fund at a rate plus 50 basis points and you try and make that 150 basis points. Duration isn't something many banks like to do. They own it in some portfolios like their mortgages, et cetera, but they spend a lot of time hedging that. So it was kind of shocking to see the amount of duration this company had. And by duration, I mean they owned a lot of 10-year bonds. So they fund overnight and have this 10-year bond. And what I think happened to them when I look at hindsight is they almost quadrupled their deposit base during COVID. So they went from, call it 50-some-odd billion to almost 200 billion in deposits. Mm -hmm. And they did that during the period where they, we were in ZERP, so there was absolutely no yield to be had. Right. And so a lot of other regional banks saw deposits increase, but only as a small percentage of their existing deposit base. So I think this, um, Silvergate Capital, Signature, all probably experienced very similar things. Um, I think when you look at some of the other companies that have been under pressure, you can see that sort of trend. And then apparently they got sucked in the chase for yield and wanted to maximize their carry and you know, I talk about, from a bond investor perspective, these five circles of bond investor hell. You can either sit there and hope things cheapen up, which tends mm -hmm. not to be a good strategy. You can take on extra credit risk. So you can move down the credit curve. You can move, say, from investment grade to high yield to get that extra yield. You can take on structured risk. Um, so you can maybe do CLOs or asset-backed deals instead of, you know, straight corporate debt. You can take on private credit. And private credit, I think, has been a growth industry because that's where a lot of people move. You mm -hmm. have a little bit more control over the situation you can pay, or you can take duration. You can extend duration. I I've always thought that's one of the least appealing things unless you have a strong view, and certainly a very unappealing thing at 0.7%. 
Um, I've been talking to a lot of people, you know, everyone got so excited about the 5% two-year. Well, the single best time to buy the two-year was when it was at 0.2%. And the reason that was is because everything else blew up way worse than it did. Right, 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 right. Okay, okay. So do you think, it sounds based on the way you're thinking about it, this is kind of a, we won't say that uh, it's not just SVB, but it's likely to be a relatively small group of affected companies. Yeah, so I think it's a small subset of companies. And I think what we're dealing with right now is, at first it was these specific companies, the hole was created, everyone got nervous on Friday. I think the Fed, the FDIC, and Treasury did a pretty good job on trying to solve it. I would have liked to see them involve more private and maybe even some haircuts or something. But anyways, they, they tried to arrest this problem. So I think what we were dealing with on Monday and we're still dealing is people are trying to assess which banks have these large um, non-mark-to-market losses sitting on their books. So mm -hmm. the banks tend to use accrual accounting. And if you owned 100 billion of treasuries that are only worth 80 billion, on your books, they're worth 100 billion because you're accrual accounting. So I think people are trying to figure out that nothing that the Fed did really solves that problem. Right. It allows them to fund and allows ways around it, but we haven't got at the heart of the problem. So I think you're going to see some volatility until something happens there. And what I'm expecting is over this coming weekend to see a couple of announcements where you either see one or two of these banks get bought. And it's probably not going to be SVB at this point because Biden's kind of come out with criminal accusations and things like that, that I'm not sure what it's based on. But that's going to be a hands-off sort of situation. Like, no one wants to get involved in that. But if you look at some of the other banks that kind of really got destroyed in terms of their equity, I would not be surprised to see one or two of them announce some sort of merger or takeover, or that someone, maybe their parent um, or some other company, gives an equity infusion. And that, to me, would set off the next round of rallies. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a gossip columnist, Peter, but care to name names? I do not. It's, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew. If I knew, I, I'd probably be you know, sitting on a beach somewhere. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's it's all good. I mean, look, there there's a lot of companies out but there. But I do like KRE, for example. I've been trading KRE from the long side since Friday. I think there's a lot that was overdone. There were some forced margin calls, et cetera. And I think we popped, sold some off a little bit today, taking advantage of that. We'll buy more. I do think it's going to be a weekend news type event where we actually see some positive come out on whether it's on the original two, so SVB or Signature, or it's on one of the other names that have been tossed around. Okay, fair enough. I, what, what I was going to say is, you know, when, when you look at the venture debt world, there's a number of, you know, BDC companies too. So it, this this can be kind of interesting to see. It may not just be banks, the, the real driver of what's happening here. I, I, I agree with you. I think there's going to be more to play out. I do think that the, re the reaction that we we're seeing early in this week is kind of uh, almost a little premature, in my opinion, that, oh, oh, it's done. Not right. quite. And so not quite yet. We, it was good that we had the sell off yesterday. It kind of created the buying opportunity. We, I, I, I'm running about a third to a half of a size position right now. I was running about 100 percent position as of the close yesterday. And we'll pair that in. But I do think I want to be 100 percent long coming into the weekend on this chance that that's where more news comes out. And also, it gives the Fed, FDIC, and Treasury time to tweak their response. Mm -hmm. And they've been very good about this, right? Well, I said maybe they only solved 70 to 80% of what went on. They did it in a very timely fashion, right? This is not the Fed or central banks that we saw in 2007, no. where they were delivering about two weeks late what might have been useful three weeks before that, and constantly behind and letting the thing snowball. So they got reasonably ahead this time.
Yeah, I think I think the biggest surprise from what I that I gleaned was deposits were ready on Monday. And I think everybody expected them to step in, but it would take a week, maybe two weeks to get it done to your point in timing. But I mean, they moved very quickly. And I was surprised to see what we saw Sunday night. But, you know, on the other hand, though, you know, and I, I wrote about this in, in the AAP roundup on Friday, you know, a lot of these things tend to get hammered out, not during market hours. So weekends are great. Uh, you know, the, I alluded to a fact that that's why we tend to have like merger Mondays, right? Because the yeah. final terms are hammered out all over the weekend. Before, you know, markets are closed, not worried about news slipping, although sometimes it does happen late Sunday night. But um, okay, let me. And I do think the Lehman bankruptcy was Monday as well. I think just yeah. So it's yes. not even always good things that happen on weekends. Sometimes <laughs> it's bad, but yes. Yeah, that's I. I appreciate. I think the listeners appreciate your sobering comment on that. Um, <laughs> Let's let's move on because the other big thing this week uh, that we've been talking about uh, over at Action Alerts Plus is um, the February CPI report. We get the February PPI report, and I have to be honest. I I look at the CME Fed Tool Watch and I I, I can't believe what I see. Right, so I'm I'm curious to get your your take on this, and let let, let me just set the stage. Right, so. The February CPI report came in in line with expectations, but core CPI was down a tick uh, compared to January and down a tick compared to uh, what it was in December. That's on a year over year basis. However, we look on a month over month basis, core CPI is going the wrong way. It was up uh, plus 0.5%. That's up from plus 0.4% in January and up from plus 0.3% or 0.2 to 0.3% November, December. So clearly going the wrong way. I don't think the Fed is going to like this. I posted that on Twitter. Um, so I'm concerned about that. I, I know we have more inflation data to get, but when I look at the CME Fed Watch tool, okay, 25 basis points next week at the Fed meeting, another 25. And then the consensus has at the June meeting, a 25 basis point cut, and then another cut in July. And I, I just, I don't think given all the comments that we've seen in the data, that the Fed is going to flip-flop that fast, kind of flies in the face of everything they've been saying. Um, but I'm curious to hear what you think. That's a lot to set up. And I think I agree with a lot of it. <laughs> have some disagreements. Um, no, so that's I would fine. say, taking a step back a week or so ago when we were starting to get the jobs data, I was leaning towards 25 bips with a chance of 50. Okay. And what and, came and, out- Hang on, hang on. That was, just, just to set the stage, was that- after Powell's first day of testimony. Yeah, after Powell had okay. spoken. So he okay. hammered everyone into watching this. And then the data came in slightly weaker. The jolts actually had a slight relief on the wage. And mm -hmm. Friday's headline jobs were great. But we actually had participation rate pick up. So that's one way we can ease some pressure without having to fire people. Right. Wages slipped a little bit. Hours went down. So to me, if the Fed wanted to stay at 25, they were given that information already. And I would say standalone basis today with what came out with CPI, I would say definitely 25, maybe 50. But we just went through this fiasco right. of the banking system. And I'm going to go back almost to first principles. And we can talk about the dual mandates of the Fed as being mm -hmm. inflation and jobs. And I'll probably get crucified for saying this because it's probably completely legally wrong. But I think from a practical standpoint, they were designed to stop bank runs. Right. The Fed was created in and around bank runs, which were relatively common back in the day. So I think at their heart, there is a real understanding of how important it is to start, stop bank runs. 
and they have that power. So I think that's changed the calculus. So I think you have to knock a little bit off. Oh, and that's totally the only agree. reason. Now, totally so that agree. part, and what I do agree with, though, I think the market's insane to be thinking about cuts. I don't see this Fed cutting rates anytime soon. I think we might get fewer hikes. We might get a pause. It's going to take something extreme. I think what we're more likely to see is them to suspend the quantitative tightening before we see a rate cut. Because I think they view that the balance sheet tools are more fungible. It's something they can manage easier. Um, you know, I think they like calling it large-scale asset purchases when they're purchasing. I'm not sure that we go to that. But I could see with all that's going on, a potential for a no hike and discussion about the potential of suspending quantitative tightening for a period of time or the balance sheet reduction. So that, to me, if we get something like that, that would be the off-to-the-races case. I'd be shocked if we get a rate cut. Um, I could see a rate hike. I, I, I'm leaning more towards zero. But again, it's all going to depend if we can get some of these banks resolved over the coming week. Maybe they go back to that 25. Okay. And the CPI data definitely it pushed in that direction. I don't think, it, had it come in like double expectations or something, right. the Fed would have a very difficult job. I think there's just enough that they can massage this to however they want. Okay, well, we'll see about that. I, I, I do have a, a, a clarifying question for you because you know a lot of folks have been really focused in on the rate cut, but you said something about kind of dialing back quantitative easing, right? So do you think that we, that we would see them do that first before they were to cut rates as had been the thought process before this happened? Yeah, I think they view them somewhat independent and I think right now, if you're really thinking about the pressure in the system, and it's a systemic sort of risk, right? That probably comes more not from the high rates, but the, you know, you basically have a large scale seller in the room. So if you take away, that will balance some of those cash flows right now. And I think it'll affect bond prices, equity prices, it stabilizes things. So to me, I could see them doing that before cutting rates. Um, and to me, and I think they've been so adamant about the need to hike rates. It would be incredibly embarrassing for them to have to come up and cut rates right now. Whereas I think they could make an easier case and say, hey, and they already did some clarifying stuff, right? When they first announced they were going to do the balance sheet reduction, people weren't sure whether they would sell mortgages if there weren't enough mortgages maturing in a month. And they very quickly said, no, we will not sell mortgages. If not even mortgage mature in a month, that's fine. Then we won't reach that limit on mortgages. So I think they have a little bit more flexibility around that tool. Okay, excellent, excellent. And um, any predictions that you've shared regarding where you think we see the terminal rate for the Fed funds rate? No, I think we don't get to 5%. I, I've been a believer that they won't be able to get there. Um, though having said that, that was looking like a much better call in November, December, and January mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. inflation was plummeting. Um, and now it's coming back a little bit. I still think, though, that we are going to see periods of deflation and the events with SVB really fit that because one thing to me is I think a huge part of the inflation pressure was the disruptive economy. And why I think it was so inflationary is you had these companies that raised billions of dollars and really their whole goal was to spend that billion dollars or 500 million as quickly as possible so they could do a new round of financing at a higher valuation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they were spending money on marketing, on entertainment. Hey, you need a new computer? get the best computer. You need screens. Why don't you have 80 inch screens? Let's do everything you want. <laughs> and so you had that. You had the immense amount of wealth that was for the individuals at these companies. I know we all talk about the people who are made billionaires, but there were a lot of people who are all of a sudden worth 5 million to 10 million on paper. 
I think the disruptive people tended to invest with each other. So as that grew, and if you look at, you know, I kind of use ARKK as a good example. Yep. Right? As you that and, grew, everyone. <laughs> I was yeah, going to say, you and, you and everybody else. Correct. So that's kind of our proxy for that sort of, you know, um, mentality, I guess. But that all grew. Crypto grew. So you had these people go from 2 to 5 million to 10 to 15. They're thinking generational wealth. Yeah, I'll buy this house. I'll buy this. And all of a sudden, not only is that gone, it, um, people were already, I think, under some pressure about their jobs. Where's my job coming? Because we're seeing layoffs in that sort of industry. And the spending's dropped everywhere. So I think you're seeing it in hotels in Miami. You're seeing it in some of the anywhere that was a real hub for that disruptive business mm -hmm. is where you're seeing the pressure points. And this, unfortunately, is going to be a stark reminder of how quickly things can unwind. Interesting. Interesting. I, okay. The Fed stopped it from unwinding. But right, there were a lot of companies, I think, that were in real fear that they wouldn't be able to meet payrolls by the end of a week or something. And what happens to them with that cash gone in this environment? So Correct. again, to me, that'll breed more conservatism within that industry. Okay. Okay. And just one other question, uh, you know, because um, I'm curious to see what you think on this. I think I was reading last week that one of the members of the ECB was saying they don't see that institution getting to its 2% in inflation target to late 2024, early 2025. D do you think that's the type of time frame that we're likely to see here in the States as well? Or do you think we get there sooner? I think we get there sooner because I still think there's this inventory overhang. Having said that, I also think they're not going to be in a rush. If it doesn't come naturally, they're not going to go crazy and put us to 6% to try and drive us. So I think anything sub 4% and realistically 3.5%, they're going to they're going to be cautious to go too far and especially right now right every evidence is like hey we had this kind of we tested the system right we had to have emergency meetings no one had bank runs on their you know 2023 bingo card at least i didn't so <laughs> right. all of a sudden i think you've got to rethink and like you know inflation is bad yes but a bank run is 10 times worse so let's make sure we resolve this um before really refocusing on the inflation yeah, and let's see what it does to spending. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. The only thing I think that makes it hard, and this is the work that you know you alluded to is being done this week, is that it is a subset, right? It, this isn't like back, you know, uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where yeah. the majority, let's just say, of banks were involved in you know the mortgage market, right? So yeah. very different, very different. So yeah. maybe maybe it's, and the it's underlying little... assets are actually very easy to understand and price. They're treasuries, they're agency mm -hmm. mortgages. So you know they've got a few maybe funkier loans and things like that. But yes, it this is a very different situation, and that's why I think the Fed, Fed has to make sure that this doesn't become something where all banks start feeling the pressure to sell or reduce assets. And that's why I think it was key the depositor just. Keep this stable, let the system stabilize, and people can forget about this in two or three months. I sure hope so. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let, let's switch gears, and I, I'm going to do this in a not-so-obvious way. Um, what I want to do, just given um, the background of your firm and everything, um, and some of the folks that you mentioned early on, um, and the conversations that you tend to have, what is your thinking about defense spending and if I, if memory serves, the proposed 2024 budget from uh, the White House is looking for another increase, but we've got the debt ceiling. How do you reconcile all of this? Well, I think we are going to see ongoing defense spending. It's, mm -hmm. you know, partly we are ultimately going to have to replace the equipment we've been sending to Ukraine. So, yes, Ukraine's been getting much of the older equipment. 
But as we deplete our warehouses, I think that is occurring. I think it's occurring across Europe as well. And Europe, in fact, I think they're going to see their defense budgets go up at a lot of places because they are much more front and center to being exposed to you know, Russian aggression. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we're going to see that. I think one wild card is going to be, does China sell weapons to Russia? If that occurs, I think everyone's going to feel the need to ramp up you know, weapons capability. Um, one thing we did talk a lot about at Academy has been, you know, are we building the right systems? Um, you know, you've got China, probably in particular, Russia, you know, cyber is cheap and easy. Drone technology, cheap and easy. Aircraft carriers, super powerful, very expensive. And so I think that's a debate that's going on within these circles is what are we supposed to be spending on? Where are we supposed to be spending it on? And making sure, too, that we really include information warfare as part of this national defense, national budget. Um, you know, aircraft carriers are powerful. They're amazing. And, you know, I think they don't get enough respect. When Fukushima happened, we sent an aircraft carrier there because it's effectively a massive city on the water mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was able to provide hospital facilities and energy and provide. So, but is that the right vehicle to have in this sort of world where you've got stealth technology, hypersonic missiles? The other talk, you know, do we need to go back to more and more automated? We actually took away some automation because there's always a risk with automation. The computer doesn't something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think we've always lived in a society probably like our criminal justice system, right? You'd rather have nine, you know, guilty people go free before, you know, sending one innocent person to jail. So we don't want to accidentally shoot a plane or something that's not a target. But I, I, all these things are going to be tested. Um, we're, I think, learning a lot from what's good out there. Um, but yeah, I, I expect that that will continue and that we are going to see defense spending increase at the very least, or not maybe increase, but stays high as we have to, at the very least, uh, replace what we're depleting through our donations or, you know, to Ukraine. So kind of at sustained levels. I think it's sustained right now, okay. um, but they're going to be developing new technologies. You know, one of our generals worked with DARPA, which is just fascinating. So that's mm-hmm. really where the army has helped, you know, traditionally fund new technologies. I think that's seeing more and more funding going to that. And that's going to be a big part because I think we realize that it's only with China. It's a technological race that we're in. And a lot of that, you know, China has, I guess, the advantage. It's a juggernaut, right? We're going to put X amount of money in this. This is the direction. Everyone's going to work on that. And the U.S. is like, here, you guys all try and do things and we'll see which ones rise to the top. And it's been a very successful way. I think it continues. But I, I would think there's going to be some neat innovation there. And there's going to be investment opportunities in the sorts of companies that can figure out what the new technologies are that are going to be required for the military. Because really, in so many ways, right, the military has often been what sponsored some of the development of technology. Oh, I, I can, I mean, it, it was one of the early adopters of the chip industry. They invest in, you know, tremendous amounts of money there. And I just remember that the big jump from 1G to 2G phones was the arrival of the gallium arsenide uh, power amplifier. And that technology was developed uh, for, hype, I think it was hypersonic aircraft. And it was only until the mobile phone industry came in with the volume to drive the pricing down that we started to see that adoption. So, I mean, you know, yeah, people- That's people, fascinating. And I think on sustainability and things, I know they're, they're all trying to work on ways for units to be more compact, self-sustainable, right? Everyone in particular, it's been a huge eye opener with the Russian convoy lines, right? Needing oil, needing gas to run, te- 
So I, I think they're looking at alternative energy sources, ways to keep things in the field without having you know long supply chains. So I think we'll see a lot of that. And the one thing that this really does dovetail to a lot of our conversation, I think, with corporations is everyone, I think, is starting to look at things from a security standpoint and yeah. not necessarily national security. But companies have to start looking and saying, how secure is my supply chain? Is my IP secure? How do we do that? Can I go and kick the tires in my factory? So I think that's driving this huge shift. And it's kind of in parallel with what's going on at the national security level is corporates are really, I think, much more aware about these. How secure are they? Right. No, I totally agree. I, you know, to me, the easy play on that is cybersecurity. Um, you know, every it, to me, it's it's the digital utility, right? Everybody's got to have it. Yeah. Um, so, Peter, before we get out of here, we, we did cover quite a bit. Um, one actually one other question relating to defense. Uh, there are a number of key uh, companies out there, Lockheed, Northrop, uh, Raytheon, uh, GD or General Dynamics. Any, any one you like better than the other? You know, we're so involved with the industry. I think we try not to pick favorites or anything, but I do think you'll see the growth. I think that's where you wind up having to assess what are the platforms that are going to make the cut five to 10 years down the road and the companies that are best in that are there. So I think some of the big ones are interesting, but I think if you can identify what are the smaller players who are really doing the R&D that one of the big players is going to want, that's kind of my investing style as a whole. I always like biotech. I like things. Um, you know, one of the smartest things I ever heard was at a conference, Michael Milken, 19, this was 2000 and 2001. He said, Merrill Lynch, 1975, put out a research report saying tech is great. How good did this guy do? Right? Everyone's like, oh, it's 2000. Everyone's like, oh, awesome. He's like, no, it was horrible. It was Dell. It was DAC. It was all these companies, you know, NCR, National Cat, that no longer really exist. They weren't what drove it. And so he's always like, look where the R&D is, because those are the companies that will, amongst them, figure the thing out and become very valuable to the big competitors. So I'm always kind of scrounging around a little bit more in the high beta, and I'd rather put less money at work, but in higher risk things and spread across. Yeah, I, I, I come at it slightly differently, which is I look for pain points. And companies mm. companies with solutions to them because you know a solution does cry out usually to these pain points so slightly different but again as I said at the beginning I wind up with some of the same answers though that way yeah yeah you you and I are kind of like a mirror mirror universe of sorts <laughs> so it's all good uh, before we get out of here Peter a anything that we didn't talk about that we should debt ceiling I think okay fortunately I haven't had to worry about the debt ceiling for ten years or longer because it all goes through the same machinations. I'm a little bit concerned what we saw with the election of the Speaker of the House, that this mm -hmm. DC is already different. And I'm concerned. I've heard one theory that this little bank run fear that we have will consolidate everyone. I'm more leaning to the camp that this is just going to give people new ammunition to argue someone got bailed out, someone didn't get bailed out. And I think this will actually make the debt ceiling debate worse. And so I'm actually, this is the most worried I've been about the debt ceiling in at least probably ever. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm still not sure of the exact implications, how long it would last, but I think that's going to be something. And even last Thursday, I know we mostly were reacting to the news about uh, Silicon Valley Bank, but Biden's budget announcement did not help markets because it was pretty clear there was no con you know, conciliation. We are going to start at polar extremes and see where we all get. And I just don't have the faith that this D.C. plays politics the way DC traditionally plays politics. Uh, I agree with you on that. It seems more polarized than ever. And uh, I would say the social media does not help.
No, everyone's searching for their sound bites, and sound bites then take on a life of their own. Correct, 100%. Well, any any closing sound bites for the podcast today, Peter? You know, uh, I'm comfortable with risk here. I think the Fed's going to have to pull back a little bit. I think, you know, we could get to 4,100, 4,200 on the S&P 500. I prefer banks. I'm going to try and trade those from you know, the KRE side of things. Um, watching closely, though, what happens with Russia and Ukraine, whether we head towards peace or whether we head towards China selling weapons to Russia. I think if we get the latter, that's a big risk off move for the markets. And then I'm kind of hoping and crossing my fingers that the debt ceiling stays away long enough for this rally to pop, because otherwise, I think as the debt ceiling starts coming front and center, I'm going to want to turn bearish again. So you said 41, 4200 on the S&P 500. Where do you see the downside? Because we have been trapped in this range for quite some time. No, I, I think if we break through, I, I could see sub 3600, maybe even the 3400 level. Okay. Because that'll be then, ooh, something's gone wrong. And to me, it would be either the debt ceiling or, again, if China does sell weapons to Russia, I think all hopes that we really can have this cordial business relationship and globalization is gone. And I think we're already separating into a Western world and a China-centric world where all the autocratic nations who are resource-rich are dealing with China more and more at the expense of us. And you just saw them strike a deal with Saudi Arabia while mm -hmm. we're also trying to get Saudis to do something. So... They are much better than the Soviet Union ever was as an adversary, and they have the economic power, which the Soviets never did. And I think that's where, where this is all headed, is a Cold War-type mentality. And there's some hopes that that doesn't lead there. To me, China selling weapons to Russia would be a real trigger that, okay, this is not what we want. Okay, okay. Well, you know, several things that you touched on, that in particular, but also the debt ceiling um, and what the Fed is going to do. Obviously, these are all developing things. I know you're going to continue to share your thoughts. The big question, Peter, is where, what, it, what is the best place or places for listeners to get your thoughts on these things? You know, real money, definitely like to post there. Um, I post two to three times a week because we do a weekly submission on Monday mornings, but I also do our covering the Fed and economic data for us. So I think that, and um, on Twitter at TFMKTS. All right, we'll make sure to have a link to that Twitter profile in the write-up for the podcast. And folks, that is this latest episode of the AAP podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next week.